morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where you can enjoy curbside pickup and take advantage of limited walk-in hours. Inside the Writer's Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Erica Roebuck, whose novel The Invisible Woman has just been published. Erica, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thanks for having me. Now, you and I first met in 2013 when you were, I believe, on tour for Call Me Zelda. And you and I and Melanie Benjamin and Emily Collin had one of those lunches together that now seems like uh, you know, one of those literary encounters that in previous generations, people wrote about in their witty memoirs, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. tell us a little bit about the path of your writing life since, since Call Me Zelda, since the last time you and I spoke, what have been the ups, what have been the downs, what brought you to this book? Well, I think like most writers, um, we don't always admit it, but publishing is rarely a nice, straight, even keeled line. Um, so it's been, it's been, there's been a lot of ups and downs, uh, many downs. So I had uh, Hemingway and Zelda novels came out, and then I had a novel of Edna St. Vincent Millay and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Mm-hmm. And after that one came out, my publishing imprint, New American Library, was dissolved, and I lost my editor. So I became unmoored which is a hard thing to be because as you know, finding an editor is a little bit like finding love. Um, You know, there's lots of really wonderful, special people, but for that connection to be enough for an editor writer relationship, that's really a hard thing to find. Um, And so I was, I worked on a new book. It was a book about my grandfather's past set in Ocean City, Maryland, Um, shopped it widely, got shot down every time. I wrote another book and this one was a departure. It was about uh, satire, about sports parents gone off the deep end, which was an area I had a lot of experience personally and (laughs) watching. Uh, Nobody wanted it because that wasn't my brand. And then I wrote a partial treatment for a novel about Mary Magdalene. Nobody wanted it. They didn't want biblical fiction Um, on and on. So I wrote two fulls, two partials. Um, Finally, an editor talked to me and said, how about writing about a woman from the past who's really strong in her own right, not a wife of, not a behind the scenes. And that's somehow when I found Virginia Hall. And it's just been such a blessing. From that, I was able to get back in. I'm back with Penguin, with Berkeley now. um, And I'm a wonderful editor, great publishing team. So there were a lot of no's, but I know that helps develop our humility, if nothing else. Well, I mean, it's true. I think there's this uh, there's this image people have that, you know, once you get your first book, big book out there, that's it. Everything else is easy. And that's that's yeah. certainly not the case. <laughs> no, no, so, no, 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 not at all. Uh, the Invisible Woman tells the story, as you mentioned, of Virginia Hall, who was an Allied spy during World War II. Um, early in the novel, you introduce us to the, to the SOE. And I'm just, I, I say this because I got to show off my knowledge that I actually knew that it was Special Operations Executive because my wife is like really fascinated by the SOE. Oh, I, have wow. another, I have another friend, Michael Huey, who's been on the podcast, who's written a, a book about people in the SOE. What is it about that organization you think that makes it so fascinating to, to readers and writers? 
Well, I know for me, I'm such a homebody and I don't like being uncomfortable and I'm scared of everything. So when you read about these people who put themselves in unbelievable danger, they're giving a six week to live timeline and enemy occupied territory with six bridges to blow up and seven children to save. To me, it's just unbelievable that there are people that are wired that way. And I'm so glad about it. I'm so thankful for it. Um, but the whole time I just keep wondering, could I have done this? Could I have risen to the yeah. occasion? Yeah. Um, the answer is probably no. I, you know, as I mentioned, I have very little courage, but I'm so motivated by those who do. The, the SOE and, and Bletchley Park, for instance, which appears in my next novel and other similar operations in the war were by their very nature, ultra secret. Um, the general public didn't know anything about Bletchley, for instance, until the 1970s. What's it like to research something that has been so assiduously guarded as a secret? Um, it's really difficult. Virginia Hall was not an easy subject. And I, you know, you can almost feel your subjects from the past. I know this. And she did not want to be found. She even said explicitly in letters, you know, I've known too many people who they talk and then they die. So that fear was always with her. And so she didn't want to be found. So finding her was quite a feat. So between having to find French language books and obscure interviews, there were some biographies. Um, but a woman of no importance, the big biography wasn't out at the time I was writing the book. So I really had to dig into the National Archives, her declassified files. Um, the good news is that her aunt lives in Baltimore, about half an oh, hour. Wow. I live in Annapolis. I'm sorry, I said her aunt. I meant her niece. Yeah, yeah. Um, she lives in Baltimore, and she let me come over and look at family photographs, told me all the story, oh, wow. took me out to lunch many times. So Lorna and I, um, she really colored in Virginia Hall for me. And then the final piece was the CIA. I applied to research there because I knew they had some of Virginia Hall's artifacts and art that featured her and they accepted me and they gave me this outstanding tour of the CIA complex museum, showed me the tricks of the trade from wow. the rat letter boxes to little strings you can use to kill people quietly. <laughs> you know? So um, it, it's just another world, but it was so fascinating. Just to me, it's fantastic that some of that that stuff survives. I mean, we, my wife and I have been to the museum at Bletchley a couple of times. We went there, the, the first time we went there, there was no museum. Um, and wow. sort of almost right before it was too late, they got some money and were able to, you know, sort of save the facility and, and turn it into a museum. But the challenges they faced trying to recreate what happened there and in other places that we've been to have, have been just remarkable to hear about because the secrets were so well kept. Yes. And I think a lot of those people suffered a lot of trauma. So oh, yeah. in the SOE and the OSS, uh, you know, a quarter of the women didn't even come home and they experienced some terrible things. Even though it's Virginia Hall, she was in prison. She had the Gestapo chasing her. She was in a prison in Spain for weeks and weeks. Um, and then just seeing the people that she cared about murdered or taken yeah. to a death camp. So I think a lot of the trauma, they just didn't really want to talk about it even after the fact anyway. So Virginia says of the SOE at one point, we are the smallest organization of war services with the highest casualty rate. Yeah. What do you think made people in general and, and Virginia in particular sign up for that? You know, I think like anything, there has to be a calling. There has to be something within you that is called to, to engage in that kind and that level of service. And, you know, for her, she had had a lot of things to overcome. First, as a woman in foreign service, they, they weren't hiring a lot of women in foreign service at the time. Then she had the hunting accident where she accidentally shot off her foot, had a prosthetic leg. And she was, of course, once that happened, the United States said they didn't want her uh, because of the prosthetic leg. Luckily, uh, France and 
she was in France at the time of the fall. So she had a lot of intelligence and the British and the SOE were happy to use her, her uh, skills, but there was just so much she had to overcome. And so I think that motivated her to, to do things that other people couldn't do. Yeah. yeah. Now I'll be honest. I was reading this book as an electronic galley. So I had no, you know, cover blurbs or anything like that. And it, it came to me just with the title. And for the mm -hmm. first few chapters, I didn't realize I was reading about a real historical figure. My wife actually goes, oh, isn't that Virginia Hall? Is that who you're talking about? And, but, it, but that experience brings up an interesting question to me. And that is, how do you balance the reality of history and the fact that you're writing a novel? Do you ever step back and go, okay, if this person didn't exist, would this still be a good novel? Well, in terms of Virginia Hall, if she didn't exist and I wrote this, no one would believe it. It would be <laughs> unbelievable that someone could be this way and, and to do these kinds of things. So for me, you know, the truth is always stranger than fiction. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I look for these stories in history. Um, but she just, for me, I, the historical piece, the fiction piece comes through the dialogue and trying to get into their skin and imagine the feelings that they would have experienced. And I do a lot of research, but then I put all that aside once I know the timeline and the facts. And I really try to channel the character and let them guide me in the writing in, in sort of almost a mystical way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Your, your prologue is set in 1926 and I felt to me, there's this there's this real sense of innocence um, in the prologue, and then all of a sudden we switch to 1944, and we're at the height of the war. Mm -hmm. You've you've written you know about history a lot in the past. Do you do you see history as a sort of seesaw between innocence and experience, dark and light? Yeah, absolutely. That's the theme that I seem to keep coming back to. I think Fitzgerald said we only ever write one novel, so I'm always exploring. <laughs> people, how we choose light and choose dark at every moment and small moments and large moments. Um, and it's interesting, you bring up the innocence versus, you know, right into the fire. My editor actually came up with the idea of including that prologue because Virginia Hall was a difficult woman. Um, some early feedback I'd gotten was that she wasn't likable. And, you know, I needed to find a way to make the reader want to align with her because she could be very off-putting. And so my, my editor came up with the idea that we show Virginia before the losses, before the accident, the rejection, and then the war, just to, to get kind of a, align ourselves with her. And then we put her there and say, gosh, what happened to her? And so I think that was a much more effective way uh, for getting the reader to align with her because otherwise she's, she's a tough customer. You know, even her, her niece, when I asked her about her aunt, she said she was scary, smart, and intimidating. Yeah. No one ever called Virginia likable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. No, I think that I think that's a really interesting way to to approach that challenge. And I think prologue, you know, I've, I've had editors go back and forth. I had one book where there was a prologue, then there wasn't, then there was, then there wasn't yeah. about four different times through the editorial process. Um, so I'm always very, you know, aware of them. And, and, I, and I like to hear the a good reason, which that is why, why they're there. Um, so another thing I always pay attention to as, as a writing geek is is choices that people make uh, about how they're going to tell the story and the technical decisions that, that other writers are make. So I have to ask why the present tense? I wanted the reader to feel as if she or he was with Virginia in the boat, with her mm -hmm. going to the village, with her experiencing it as she did. And that present active tense, there's just nothing like it for immersing the reader in it, but then also having her flashbacks because she had a, I think a right. pretty severe case of post-traumatic stress is what I was able to put together. Mm -hmm. um, and then being able to use that being 
taken out of the present moment when she falls back through those different triggers that send her falling backward to the past. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in popular culture and movies and books about the war, we hear a lot about the resistance in France. I mean, I think for me, it goes all the way back to even as a child, something as silly as watching Hogan's Heroes. You know, we had this notion of, of what the resistance was. Um, and just the other day, I saw this marvelous newish, I think, film about Marcel Marceau and his work with the French oh, wow. resistance. Mm -hmm. But we hear a lot less about the other side. I don't think I'd ever heard the term milice until I read your novel. Tell us about them. That was one of those things I found in research that I didn't know about either were the French collaborators and the levels of that. And it was it was really horrifying to me, for example, to hear that um, in the large roundups of the Jewish population in 1942, that was done largely by the French police. Uh, they were doing it in cooperation with the Nazis, but um, really, really were the catalyst for that. So seeing how the everyday people picked aside, uh, the police, the French police were more dangerous for spies because they could hear dialect. Whereas the Germans there, you know, if you were speaking French, they couldn't necessarily tell if you were speaking it well or not. Yeah. But when you have the French police there, they could hear that. And that was very, very dangerous for the spies. Yeah, yeah. So Virginia goes into Nazi-occupied France, and you write, she didn't comprehend the potency of full Nazi occupation, how it pollutes the air and poisons those who breathe it. What was it like as a writer to put yourself into that polluted air? How did you get to that, that place of, of really feeling on an emotional level what it, what it was like to, to live in, not just in an occupied country, but in that particular occupied country? So I, my process is usually the same. I start with the biographies and then I go to any personal writings, if there's autobiography, memoir, um, letters and journals. And when I get to the letter journal piece, that's when I can get inside the head of my characters. So I read a lot of firsthand accounts of what it was like to live in Nazi occupied France and how terrifying that was. Um, so that's how I'm able to, to put on the character and to experience it. And then just to channel you know, any of my own experiences with fear and what fear does to people. Um, so it, it was a hard book though, because when you do put yourself in that place um, over and over again in the writing, it would come out at terrible nightmares. I had really, really bad oh, nightmares gosh. when I wrote yeah. this. And yeah. some of the things that I read, I, I didn't understand the level of evil that existed. I mean, I always knew, but just spending so much time researching it brought it to a, a whole new level. So it was personally very difficult to write some of the book. I mean, I think of it in, when I think of the context of our, our current time, you know, we're, we're living in a moment here in early 2021 where, um, to a certain extent, death is always at the door. You know, there is, there is this danger out there. But when you read about it in, in, in France in the 1940s, that was much closer <laughs> to the door. Uh, and, and just the, the, the sense that you get in this book, I think, that, that um, I thought was remarkable was that just that constant danger that any at any moment you could open the door and it's all over, not just for you, but for your family, for your community, for your, and for this sort of battle of good versus evil. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I thought I had a good idea of what it was based on the research, but then um, during the writing of the book, my son he experienced a traumatic injury, he played ice hockey and a skate came up and lacerated his neck. It was about three millimeters from his interior jugular, but it did hit his anterior jugular and um, he almost died so that night was uh extremely traumatic 
over about a six hour period. And some of that actually went into the writing of this book in terms of mm -hmm. the combat situations and the post-traumatic stress and what we went through after that. Yeah, yeah. Now, my tendency is to think of uh, SOE operatives in particular as very physically fit. I don't know if you saw this, but there was recently on British television, a reality TV series. Yes. Yeah, where they went yes. through the actual training that the SOE officers did. It was, it was amazing. amazing. Um, and, but Virginia has this, I, I think when we find it out as readers, if we didn't know beforehand, this really shocking physical limitation that makes us think she couldn't possibly do that. And that is, as you said, her, her prosthetic leg. Um, tell us a little bit about that, how that happened. And also specifically, like what challenges did that present to you as an author in terms of having to have her with this, you know, uh, physical uh, difficulty that she has to overcome constantly? Well, I have, there's a couple pieces that help with the writing of it. Well, first of all, addressing Virginia herself, she was an avid outdoorsman <clears throat> woman and exercised an athlete all through high school. She played every sport there was, was the captain of every single team, learned how to hunt, row, hike, everything on her family's property um, in outside of Baltimore, which I was able to visit and spend some time in to, to really understand where she came from. Um, and then after all of that, when I was reading about her with her injury, I really understood a lot about how she needed to plan for things ahead of time, how long she would be on her, on her feet, how long it would hurt, how she would medicate to make sure if she had long journeys ahead of her to make sure she was addressing the pain. My mother actually had, she had scoliosis, which is very different from a prosthetic leg, but it was a very debilitating form of scoliosis and her self-consciousness about it, having to plan for it, uh, the ways that she had to view the world and, and plan how she was going to be for long outing because she had a hard time breathing, yeah. actually helped a lot with understanding Virginia's injury. Um, and I have two good friends actually who have prosthesis. One of them has an amputated foot and the other has uh, two amputated legs. Mm -hmm. And so both of those women, I spent time speaking with them about um, the logistics of it and how it how it affects their day-to-day -day life and even the larger things beyond the day-to-day -day. and all of that went into helping me understand Virginia. Yeah. Now the soldiers of World War II were men but yes. many of the heroes of World War II were, were women. I mean I, my sure. friend uh, late friend now Mavis Beatty was one of the key code breakers at, at Bletchley yeah. uh, and we have people like Virginia Hall. Can, can you talk about just generally the role of women in the war and, and why particularly you wanted to write about that? Sure. I, you know, I think in publishing, when I was speaking to that editor years ago, we, we kept talking about women in the shadows, but women often are the backbone of so many things, maybe even in a quiet way. I think there's a quote that says anonymous is usually always a woman. Um, and because that's, you know, that's something I can identify with and who I am. It's something I wanted to bring forward to show what good, strong women are and how they support and all the different roles. So Virginia is a, you know, extremely courageous, determined person. Um, but then you have some of the people who lived in the villages, just everyday men and women who were farmers, who were mothers, who all put their talents together um, to work together. And so even though one might not be able to trek through the Pyrenees on a prosthetic leg, she is able to put something in her pocketbook to carry across the market that will help the resistance. So I wanted to show all the different ways that women can help. It isn't just about scaling mountains and arming guerrilla fighters, but it's also in the everyday areas. I also love this, this portrayals of her as 
as a leader. I mean, she goes out and there, there's this, this group of men who are sort of waiting to do something and she, she kicks them into shape pretty much. You know? she sure does. Um, <laughs> and she got a lot of pushback. One of the books I read that was a, a French language book um, was about one of the McKee fighters. And, you know, at the time in 1940s in France, men did, did not look highly upon women necessarily on a large scale. Mm-hmm. And young men, especially when she got up into the mountains and she's dealing with 17 and 18 year old cocky testosterone fueled orphans, who were like the lost boys running around the forest, they did not want to listen to a woman who was dressed like an elderly person who yep. came limping up. But she she basically commanded respect wherever she went and said, you either fall in line or I'm not going to help you. So she was really good at using her leverage and her power. And then by the end, they worshipped her. You know, yep. they called themselves yep. different, la, the Diane McKee and you know, different ways. <laughs> so it, it took some time, but she always won him over. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I interviewed um, Eric Larson last year about his book, The Splendid and the Vile, about the Blitz. And um, we agreed that one of the challenges about writing about an event like World War II is that the reader knows how it turns out. The, sure. the, no matter how threatening we try to make it, the reader knows that London survived the Blitz and that, mm-hmm. that the Allies won the war. Um, but your characters don't know that. How yeah. do you how do you get across that uncertainty, that doubt at times, even that despair to a reader who has the benefit of hindsight? Well, when I when you go in, everybody can identify with feelings of doubt, despair, fear. So if you capitalize on the emotions, then you take the reader into those emotions, even though they know how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. And there are some things that you can use that they don't know how it's going to go. So while they know overall how the war went, they don't necessarily know how Virginia and her network fared. And in this book, one of the, the large questions was, can she help hunt this betrayer who ruined her first network? Um, she felt extremely guilty about it because in a sense, she let him in. Not only, I mean, she had a lot of negative thoughts about him. She kept questioning headquarters, are we sure he's vetted? Um, and he, he was vetted. So it was somebody that she had sort of let in, but all, even though she was worried about, she allowed to come in. And with that, we don't know what happens to her people and what happens to the betrayer. So that became a piece of the storytelling the reader could look at and not know the outcome. Yeah, yeah. I, I had an author on a few months ago, we were talking about um, the criminal justice system and sort of unintended consequences and collateral damage. And we see the same thing in, in wartime as well. And one of the things that just sort of knocked me out when, when I came across this in, in your novel is that you mentioned that 30,000 diabetics died in two weeks just because they couldn't get an insulin shot. Yes. Um, with so much that's familiar to us about World War II, what, what surprised you when, when you were researching the book? What, what knocked you out of your seat? Well, that was the first one, just the everyday human cost, something that yeah. never even occurred to me. Um, and then uh, I won't get into some of the specifics, but when the certain villages were pillaged by the Nazis and the level of murder, the people that they killed and how they killed them, there was a lot I didn't know before I went into this book. And it was, it was horrible to hear uh, the level. You know, again, we, I knew the large things, but to know the individual stories and how those turned out was really gut-wrenching. It was incomprehensible to me. I won't say what one of those uh, instances were that's in the yeah, book, yeah. but it was just shocking to me to read what they did to a child, you know. Yeah, yeah. Virginia says at one point, to know the world cares, you can't know what that does for us. Um, 
I was really amazed and, and, and very touched traveling um, in Alsace and one of the last parts of France that was liberated um, to find in every, on every village square, the American flag flying. Oh, wow. uh, and, and even 70 years later, a, a real sense of, of gratitude. Can you talk a little bit about the French attitude towards America during and, and immediately after the war? Sure. I, you know, in the beginning, they became so isolated once the once France fell, and there was no way for the Allies to get back there. And during that isolation, you know, there were so many stages of grief that they went through. Um, but one of the biggest feelings was feeling abandoned. Like, where was the outside world? Why weren't they helping them? And then they would hear of D-Day, and it just it took so long to come, and they didn't know where where it was and if it would ever come. And for a while, the French at large, I would say through research, we're trying to be cooperative and exist within the new regime. But it very quickly became evident that that was not going to work because slowly, you know, as individual rights are infringed upon, uh, as the French start to starve, as the Nazis are getting fat and happy and exploiting their resources, and then when the Jewish population starts to get deported, it started with foreign-born refugee Jewish people, and then they go right to the French residents. It was shocking to people. They didn't understand the magnitude of what was happening. And so at that point, when they had nothing left to lose, that is when the Allies were starting to infiltrate through the spy networks. It really took a couple of years to get Get going. But once it started going and it started growing like wildfire, it, it showed them that people cared. And then once these drops of supplies started getting through just basic human needs, food, health, healthcare access, different things to help them live, um, it started to increase their, uh, their pride and not only their pride, but their strength physically and morally. And so by the time it came time, everybody was able to contribute with winning together. And that I think was really good for the national pride because they had been um, destroyed so quickly and so completely. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, Virginia is staying with a, a family and the mother says of her son at one point that um, while she's scared of what could happen to him if he's caught resisting, she says, quote, I'm more terrified of what could happen to him growing up in a world where his mother and father and uncle and cousins didn't do everything in their power to stop evil. Um, I, that, that sentence really hit a, it struck a chord for me. Could, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, sure. You know, one of the reasons I like writing about people from the past is very often they're strongly connected to a faith of some kind, which mm -hmm. um, it's harder to tackle that in the present day. Um, so when just reading about the families and the different faiths that they had, whether it was a Jewish faith or a Catholic faith or the, the Huguenot Protestants, um, that that really became a foundation and an anchor for them. And a lot of them helped because they knew it was the right thing to do and were able to find the strength through the grace of that faith. And that the mom who says that, Marie, that is a real person. Her son would run weapons in a wagon. He got a medal after the war at nine years old. Um, so, wow. I, you know, just seeing the people and their, their strong foundations of faith and the grace that came through that, I think enabled them to do the really, really hard things. Yeah, and in fact, Mimi says in that same scene, if her whole family dies in the war, it will be worth it to stand proud before God. Sure. And then Virginia says, well, I don't believe in God. Yeah. <laughs> Which, but, but I think that brings up an interesting point that you do have this, you know, a strong faith community that she, that she comes into. And, you know, she is as committed as any of them, but she doesn't have that particular basis to, to fall back on. How did, how did you sort of play around with that dichotomy of having somebody who, who claims not to believe in God 
be in this uh, in this area where you know people are have rosaries and people are saying their prayers and and risking their family so that they can stand be proud before God. Well, I spoke to Virginia's niece a lot about that, and she said Virginia didn't practice any particular faith. And um, you know, I'm not sure what what or why the background is, but I do know she has, as I said, a strong sense of calling to a duty. And I think that her duty, she felt like a protector and a defender, and that sort of became her identity. And so that was her foundation of of protecting and caring for people and doing what she could to help them. So, you know, in a way that was her own, her own sort of faith. Yeah. Virginia wonders um, at one point and, and maybe at more than one point, if, if what she does is worth the loss of life that it causes, it's a, it's an equation that's constantly recalculated. I think by every decision that wartime leaders make, we see it um, at Bletchley where they have to decide, you know, they, they break these messages and they have to decide which ones they're going to act on because if yeah. they don't act, people die. But if they do act, the Germans figure out that they've broken the code. You know, um, in the end, what was the difference in the war that that the SOE and and the resistance made? You know, several leaders of the Allied countries said it was a material difference that they made because they were able to puncture this you know this barrier by getting behind enemy lines and working from the inside out and creating an instability there that allowed when the external invasions came, um, these little breaks and these little places where it could rise up almost like fissures and, you know, to just allow it all to crumble. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But, you know, it was, they, I think there was an estimate that they said the people in clandestine service lengthened, lessened the length of the war by about six months, they mm -hmm. estimated, which is that's, obviously that's, a material amount of time. Yeah, that's a, that's a favorite, um, statistic for people to try to throw around. We, my wife and I noticed that, that, you know, when we're in England, there are lots of documentaries about World War II on, on television. And very often they'll say, and this such and such shortened the war by four months. I mean, if all of these things were true, the war would have been about two days long. <laughs> it would have been very short, yeah. <laughs> um, but, it, but it is, I mean, it's interesting to, to especially I think when the, with the coordination with D-Day, once mm -hmm. they started to get farther inland, it seems like that, that made a big difference to have had agents further in and and to have a resistance that was active at the time. Yes, and for those who were able to go gather intelligence about different locations and bring those things back, um, it was just invaluable for the yep. people on the outside. Yep. I spoke with um, with our old luncheon companion, Melanie Benjamin, a couple of weeks ago about her new book, and, and yeah. we, we broached a topic that we all talked about back in 2013, so I want to ask you about it too, and that is um, we talked about, you know, all three of us have written historical novels, and we talked about the danger of doing too much research, knowing too much about the characters that we're trying to put in our novels so that we end up being just strictly historians rather than novelists. Can, can you talk about, for you with this book, the sort of the balance between research and imagination? Yes, uh, I really, for this book, I wished I had more history often and having to put this puzzle together was a huge undertaking. It was the most difficult book I've ever written. Usually, you know, when I wrote about Ernest Hemingway, my, my biography shelf behind me has 20 books. So with all of that, I, and you know, and then the archives, extensive archives, I was able to know everything I needed to um, and then allow the space in between for my care. I had fictional characters I inserted 
to almost balance it and make it more fictional. Here, I was just craving more information from Virginia. So for me, it was harder to, to not have everything I needed. Um, but in the end, there is a certain freedom in that when I can let that go, let the timeline go um, and just explore you know, what the characters are trying to do. But it is, it's always a, each book presents new challenges. Sometimes there's too much information. Sometimes there's not enough, so. Yeah, yeah. and did you, so you inserted fictional characters in this book that were, um, sort of made from scratch or were all of the characters based on at least something that you, you found out in your research? All of them were based on something if they weren't real. Most of them were real. But yeah. for example, the, um, the Nazi MP who we see throughout the book is a composite of different men. So I yeah. put him together um, so that we had a name and a face to right. not just a, you know, an, someone, but it was an actual person. Right. And I used what I knew from Virginia and being hunted by the Gestapo and the MPs, and then also did some side research to find some of those men who didn't survive the war and put them together to make a character. But everybody yeah. else was, you know, aside from a couple composites, oh, for the Labrat family, uh, there were so many Labrats, I had to just <laughs> pick one and name him. <laughs> so he's in a painting with Virginia. So I said, all right, Edmund, you are representing the Labrat family for me. Yeah. So that, that, you know, those kinds of things, you have to make those choices. Absolutely. I've always felt that the, the best historical fiction, and, and this is what I like about historical fiction, is that it it teaches us about the past, but it's also relevant and relevatory of, of the present. How do you see the invisible woman connecting to the world of 2021? Well, it, I think for most of the time when I was going through it, I realized we, we think we have it bad sometimes and we just have no idea how bad it is. <laughs> you know, it, we so don't have it bad on the most part. So in some ways it's an inspiration to rise above the petty concerns of day-to-day -day life. Um, but also I think it's, it's important to keep recalling history and to remember that things can go south very quickly. So, you know, the old thoughts become words and words become actions and actions become ideologies that can happen very quickly so we all have to be very careful um, and you know be civil with one another because the world can very quickly get out of hand so i think that is most certainly relevant uh, today and in any day yeah we um eric and i lars and i were talking right at the beginning of the lockdown and uh you know about this this idea because at that time you know people were kvetching about not you know yeah. being able to do this or that and and you know he said well you know, in London, what they were asked to do was send their children away and maybe never yes. see them again, yes. send their sons away and maybe never see them again, yes. and then hope that their house wasn't the one that got blown up tonight. You know, yes. uh, by comparison, having somebody else load your groceries in the back of the car seems like right. not the biggest sacrifice in the world. Yeah. Uh, but I think, but I, but I do think it, I mean, I think um, this, I'm not, I'm not trying to belittle what we're going through at all. No. Um, because we are going through a, a traumatic event that is that is more worldwide than any event of the past century, even more worldwide than the Second World War. Um, but but I do think that by looking at past traumatic events, we can we can help to understand what what we're going through, and and to see that that humans have the the strength and the ingenuity to to get through it. And that's that's one of the things I learned looking at at, at Virginia and and just you know, the, the sheer ingenuity of the things that they did just amazes me. Yeah, and what people are capable of. It's so inspirational. And I need, so, I think we really need these stories of inspiration and redemption. Yeah, yeah. When, when we met back in 2013, my first novel was about to come out. Mm 
and um, you and and Melanie especially were were full of really great advice for me that advice that I fall back on to this day about sort of uh, what it was going to be like to be a novelist. <laughs> uh, what what advice have you received from other writers about the writing life? They, the best advice I've received is to not pay attention too much to the noise and to keep it about the work. Um, I know I, I myself, I'm guilty of occasionally, you know, going and checking my reviews or, or trying to, uh, you know, keep up on social media with what people are getting. And, you know, comparison is the thief of joy. So if it's, if you really look to that, lots of people have told me, find what your passions are and pursue them in your writing and focus on that. And even when, when a book is coming out to have the next book that you're working on, it's a safe place for you. That's away yeah. from all the noise of publishing and just keeps you invested in, in the cost to write which that you have and to, to stay close to that that's been really helpful for me yeah I do I find one of the challenges of the of the publishing world is just the timeline in that Ooh, yeah. when 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 a book is published my brain is deep in the next oh, book yeah. I mean the next book might even be a, a completed draft at, at the top by the time that mm -hmm. you know the previous book comes out and so then they're, you're, they're sort of asking you to take your brain back to two and a half years ago <laughs> And do what we're doing now. Talk, talk, talk cogently about something that you can just vaguely remember from your past, you know. Right. Um, but it, but it is, you know, it's just it's it's part of it's part of our job. But it's but I, I agree. It's nice to have to have a book that people haven't seen, that people aren't talking about, that yeah. you can sort of go and and immerse yourself in um, when all the hoopla is going on. Yeah. Yes. And for me during the pandemic, it's been my saving grace. I, I go to my little world every day and it, it's, you know, it's just a place of retreat, not always a, a happy place, but it's just um, something separate. So I can take my mind off the present day, the way people like escapist fiction. I like writing because yeah. it, it helps me do that. Can I ask what you're working on? Sure, it's another uh, story of a strong American woman who helped in World War II. Uh, this woman came from Florida and uh, helped smuggle pilots out of France. And her story oh, wow. collides with another woman who was in the SOE at Raven Ravensbrück concentration camp. That's great. Um, so again, another heavy subject, but uh, I think ultimately redemptive and inspiring. Yeah, yeah. Well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into writing and into Erica Roebuck. So if you're ready, we will begin. All right. What word do you love to work into your writing? Well, I try not to work the word moist in, but <laughs> I, I don't know that I have a certain word that I work into my writing. Let me ask right. you that question, Charlie. What word do you work in? Uh, you know, I like uh, I like automatopoetic words. I like like plethora and dearth are a pair that oh, I really enjoy very words. much. You know, I guess I do like the um, word clandestine. I think yeah. that's a fun word. Uh, what word do you, you may have answered this already, but what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? I do hate that word moist. I know it's a cliche, but it's just a gross word. Yeah. Where's your favorite place to write? I have a little writing cottage on the Severn River with two oh, portal nice. windows. So that's my favorite place. Where could you never write? I could never write in a busy cafe. Mm -hmm. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? Uh, starting a sentence properly. So I do like to start sentences with and or but. Yeah. What was the first book you remember reading? Uh, the first book I remember, well, The Cat in the Hat by Dr. Seuss. Yeah. Uh, what are you reading now? I'm reading, I just finished The Yellow Wife by Sadiqa Johnson about antebellum Virginia and a woman who is enslaved who ends up having to marry a white jailer. And it is fascinating, mm -hmm. gripping and painful. 
What book would you like to have written? Possession by A.S. Bach. Oh, such oh. a good answer. Oh, I love that book. <laughs> oh, what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? I love thriller. If I ever depart from historical, it will be to thriller. That's what I, that's, that's my next one was, was a thriller. I decided to, oh, I love to that. just take a stab at it. Yeah. 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 Um, and finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I love when readers tell me they ignore their family, stay up all night and cry. So it's very evil, but I love to hear those things. <laughs> this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Erica Roebuck, whose novel, The Invisible Woman, is available wherever books are sold. Erica, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Charlie. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place in nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking to international best-selling author Matt Haig about his new novel, The Midnight Library. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. <laughs>